The book of Genesis, chapter number 1. Genesis chapter number 1. And let's begin reading at verse number 26. Here's the creation account. We're coming to the creation of mankind in verse number 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. If you've been here with us over the last few weeks, we've been uh, sort of introducing a a series on on worldviews. Uh, and, and we've been looking at what it means to think like a Christian and sort of the implications that that has for us. Last week we saw how Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 really call us to think like Christians. We're, we're all called to be sanctified, to grow in holiness. And the means or the process that that, that, that looks like, or, or an essential part of that process, is that our minds are changed. Uh, They're shaped by the Word of God. And as our minds, as our thought life, as our outlook on life, our worldview is shaped to line up with Scripture, then our actions will do the same. In a previous week, we saw that this idea of living out a Christian worldview is what Jesus called us to when He said that you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And, And we saw that by living out a, a, a life that lines up with Scripture that is influenced by the Word of God, we provide light to the world around us. We spend another week looking at sort of just introducing what a worldview is, what it means to think like a Christian. And, and we tried to make the case uh, that as Christians, we should not be those who leave our faith in church or leave our faith at home. That But instead, when we go into the school system or we go into the workplace, when we go out into the secular world, we we go out fully uh, committed to Jesus Christ, thinking and acting like Christians and seeking to influence the world around us with Christian principles. We don't check them at the door. We don't leave them at home. But everything that we do is shaped by the Word of God. Uh, and, And so when we do that, we will provide that light that we are called to be in Matthew chapter 5. But now, kind of what I want to do, the, the first three weeks of this series, and hopefully you've been tracking with me and kind of getting what I'm talking about. Uh, sometimes when you're introducing new concepts and new ideas, for some of you, I'm sure this is a new idea, a new concept, a, a, a worldview and thinking Christianly. 
but when, sometimes when you do that, it's difficult. Uh, people, it, it takes a while to soak in, oh, that's what you're talking about. So hopefully you've been following with me. But now what I want to do is kind of move from uh, the conceptual idea to the practical level. And what I want to do over the next few weeks is demonstrate what a Christian worldview looks like in, in some specific ways. Uh, so this, over the next few weeks, is not going to be uh, the totality of a Christian worldview. But what I'm d- trying to do is give you some examples. You know, when you're in math and, and you, know, you read a couple pages in your textbook about the, the way and the concept of how this math problem works, and then you get an example problem. And after that, then you go and you actually begin to do the work. Or in science, uh, a concept is explained and then you do an experiment and you see it put into practice. Well, that's what we want to do over the next few weeks is take this idea of a Christian worldview, our lives being influenced by the word of God so that when we go out into the world, we seek to influence the world by Christian principles. That, that concept now we want to take and put into practice. And what we want to think about this morning, first of all, is the image of God. Uh, in the title there, it's the Imago Dei. Uh, that's what theologians and philosophers, uh, just a Latin phrase for, for the image of God. The fact that we are made in the image of God, we want to take that now and we want to apply that principle to various uh, sectors of life, various issues that we deal with and that are, we are confronted with. And, and we want to see how a principle like this The fact that humanity is made in the image of God, how that should cause us to think about a whole host of issues that we deal with uh, on an everyday uh, in an everyday way. This week, uh, what we're going to look at is poverty. We're going to look at our response to the poor, to the issue of poverty. And we want to do so in light of the fact that human beings are made in the image of God. And we're going to take Uh, What I want to do this morning is, again, we talked about the image of God a little bit in previous weeks. So I want to talk about the image of God again for a minute, just to uh, kind of make you familiar with that idea again. And then we're going to begin looking at how that impacts poverty. And and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a few different issues and how the image of God uh, affects these various issues. This week, like I say, I had about three or four issues that I want us to look at. Over the next few weeks, I was kind of wrestling this week, which direction do I want to go in and uh, what, what, which particular one do I want to focus in on this week? And I will, as I often do, I sometimes leave my office and I'll kind of come in here and, and think and walk around, maybe read. And the, the Bible is not up there anymore. Is it down below? Uh, that, that Bible was up here this week and it was open and, and I'm not a very mystical person. I usually don't. Uh, I usually don't take my cues from things like this, but I walked up and I walked to that Bible and my, my eyes just fell to uh, Proverbs 31, 9, which says this, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And that was the first verse right there that, that my eyes came to as I looked at that open Bible. And uh, so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to open my mouth. I want to judge righteously and I want to defend the rights of of the poor and needy. So as we do that, let's again remind ourselves, what is the image of God? The Imago Dei, what does that mean? Well, we see here in, uh, this is where we we get the idea in Genesis chapter one, uh, verses 26 through the end of the chapter. And what we notice uh, a few key points in in this passage. First of all, uh, when, when God comes to the creation of man, 
So far, if, you, if you're familiar with the creation account, you, just, you remember that everything God decides, he says, let there be light, and there is light. And let there be creatures on the earth, and there are creatures on the earth. And, and let plants grow, and plants grow, and let this happen. And he just speaks, and it happens. But now, as we get to verse 26, you notice that there's a pause. God begins to speak to himself. He, he begins to take counsel with himself. Then God said, let us make man in our image. This breaks the flow of the narrative. Everything has been God said this and it happened. And God said this and it happened. But now it's slowed down. And I think the writer is doing that. And I think God did it in this manner to demonstrate that something special, something unique is about to happen. Something that has been different from everything else that he has created up to this point is now about to take place. What we see here, the second thing I think is that there's in this immediate context, God has just been creating right before he creates humankind. He's just been creating all living creatures. And you can see that in verses uh, 24 and and 25. He made every living beast that 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 is on the earth. But now he comes to human beings. And what he's showing us here is that there is a clear distinction between all the other living creatures on the earth and. And human beings. He stops, he pauses, he doesn't just say, and let there be human beings on the earth. We would just be one of, of many other various kinds of living creatures. But he pauses and he says, let us make man. And he says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Here is where we get the idea that human beings are special. They are unique. They are made in the image of God. He uses two words here. This is Hebrew poetry. This is the way uh, that, that they would often write poetry. It's this, the repetition of the same idea with different words. And so uh, we don't need to get too specific. Well, what does image mean and what is likeness? Is, is there a distinction there? No, he's saying simply that God made us to be in his image, that is to represent him on this earth and in his likeness, that there is a similarity. There is there are some similarities, some important similarities between the way that God is in his character and nature and the way that we are as human beings in our character and nature. So so there are two important ideas conveyed in image and likeness. First is that we represent God on this earth. And I think we see that immediately. Because in verse 28, uh, God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven. So, so God gives dominion to human beings. He doesn't do that to apes or other animals. He doesn't do that for anyone else or anything else. When he comes to man, he makes man in his image and then he gives man dominion over his creation. We know, Psalms 8.3, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This world and the animals and everything in it belongs to God. And yet God has entrusted it to us as stewards that we are to have dominion over this world. We're, we're a sort of vice regent. God rules over the world. And yet he has placed us as sort of governors underneath him, underneath his rule to rule over and to have dominion over this world. And that's part of what it means that we're in the image of God. He's, he's given us, or, or one of the takeaways of being made in the image of God, is that he has given us stewardship. We represent God in this world, and we are to exercise dominion and control over this world. So as we build bridges, and we, we build dams, and we, we, over, we, we find cures 
for disease and all these various things that we do. That is man exercising dominion over the creation. That's what we're called to do. But a second part of this idea of being made in the image and likeness of God is is that we reflect God. We not only represent God, we're stewards, but we also reflect God. The idea is is somewhat like the idea of sonship. Uh, We know that you know, sometimes uh, uh, someone will have a child and will say, oh, he's the spitting image of his father. He looks just like him. And that, in part, uh, is what this means to be made in the likeness of God, in the image of God. It is that we represent, but also that we reflect God in his character, in his nature. Now, not fully, not completely. There are some very important ways in which the Bible is clear. You are not God. You are a creature. And yet we, we represent or we reflect God in some very important ways. Again, the idea is that of sonship. We're sons of God. So Genesis 5, uh, 1 through 3, I think we see this idea of sonship. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made man in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his likeness, in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So here Adam has a son, and this son of Adam, Seth, is in Adam's image and likeness. It's the idea of sonship. Or what about Luke 3.38? In the lineage of Jesus Christ, he goes in Luke all the way back to Adam, and he says this, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Adam was the son of God. He was made in the image and likeness of God. What are some ways that we reflect God? Well, there, there are, and I don't want to get too far off of this because I want us to move forward into what we're looking at today. Uh, but some important aspects of what it means to be like God. One is that we're spiritual beings, as we've talked about in previous weeks, that we are a spirit. And, and so uh, animals die. There, there's no spirit there. We, we have a non-material part of our being. God is a spirit and we are spirits as well. We're also moral beings. Uh, we, we understand the difference between right and wrong and morality. Uh, animals don't understand that, but we're made in the image of God. And so we have morals. Uh, we're creative. Uh, we're, we're artistic. We write stories. We tell stories. We, we paint pictures. Uh, we, we, we learn to play instruments. All of these things are, are because we're made in the image of God. We're, we're creative. God is creative and we are creative. We're rational beings. We, we have an intellect. We, we, we have philosophy and we think about things. We have a field of science because we're rational beings as God is. And there are many other ways in which we reflect God. Nothing else in all of creation reflects God like we do because we are made in the image and likeness of God. What I want us to see this morning, though, is not to focus so much on what it means to be in the image of God, but to go from there and to see that the image of God, the fact that human beings, every human being, is made in the image of God, means that every human life is worthy of dignity and value. We understand that an attack on an image is an attack on the person or the thing that it represents. I see all the time people furious on Facebook because somebody is burning the flag. And, and I think rightly so. What a horrible thing. America, the American flag stands uh, for freedom and justice and all the good things that the, 
that America values and stands for. And we get angry when somebody burns that image, when they take it and destroy it. it it's not because that the, the fabric or whatever it's made out of is so important. It's because it represents something greater. It's, a, it's an image. And so to deface the American flag is to deface and to disgrace what America stands for. We, we've seen this played out, right? When dictators are overthrown, to kind of give a negative example, you remember Saddam Hussein is, is overthrown and what do the people do? They go and they find a statue of him and they topple it, they throw it over because they want to, they want to display the fact that they do not like Saddam Hussein, right? He's a bad, he was a wicked uh, dictator. And so they're, they're, they're representing that by overthrowing his image. What about this? What if you had a loved one who passed away and you had one picture of them and, and you loved that picture and you were to find somebody uh, cutting it up and, and writing on it and drawing pictures on it. Wouldn't it make you angry? It's because that, that image is there and that's special. It means something to you. And so the, the point that is being made is that every human being is an image bearer of God. We're all made in God's image. So to defile and to disgrace, to attack and to insult someone who is made in the image of God, God takes that personally. It is an attack not just on that person, but it is an attack on God himself. Because that person, no matter who they are, no matter the kinds of things that they've done, no matter how much we might disagree with them, they are made in the image of God. And there are there are at least three passages. I think there are more, but there are at least three passages, I think, that, that take this principle and show us that this is exactly what it means. So in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, uh, Noah comes out of the ark and God uh, gives him the covenant, uh, the Noahic covenant, and, and God speaks to him and he tells him various things. But notice this in Genesis chapter 9, uh, verses 5 through 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So here's the idea of, of capital punishment that God is telling Noah, uh, and, and he says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So if someone kills someone, uh, God is telling Noah here, their life is going to be required of them. And what is the reasoning that is given? Listen to the rest of the verse. For God made man in his own image. The reasoning that is given is that someone who is disgraced and so attacked the image of God, someone who bears God's image, has forfeited the right to life. We see this in a second place. In Job chapter 31, this same idea uh, carries out. I think Job 31 verses 13 through 15. Job is defending himself. Job is suffering. He's suffering even though he's been righteous and he's, he's being attacked by uh, these three so-called friends who are telling him that surely he's done something wrong and if he would simply confess the wrong that he's done, then God would remove this suffering. But Job is, is defending himself and saying, no, I, I've been just, I've been fair. In fact, I've treated my servants fairly and, and so on. And listen to what he says. If I have rejected the cause of my maidservant, my manservant or my maidservant, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did he not fashion us in the womb? So this person 
My servant that I have, Job is saying, I've treated them fairly because I know that I'm going to stand before God and God made them and God, God made me. And so I'm going to give an account for how I treat this person that God has made. Or how about a third example? James chapter 3, verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. So here's the basic argument. James is talking about how uncontrollable our tongue is. And we all, we all have experienced that from time to time when we lash out and, and we recognize that. But guys, James is saying here, listen, this is problematic. Because we come to church and we sing how great is our God. And then we go out and we, we deride people and we gossip about people and we talk about people and we cut them down. We make fun of them. And they're made in the image of God. They look like God. They're made in His likeness. So how can we praise God and then at the same time talk about people who look like God, who are sons of God, who are made in God's image and likeness? That is problematic. The principle that is at work and each one of these passages is that the image of God means that every human life is worthy of value and dignity. We ought to treat them well because they're made in the image of God. Human value, worth, and dignity arises from the fact that we are made in God's image. Chuck Colson put it this way, since the value of human life flows from the image of God, so does human dignity. And since the image of God is shared by all people, all of us have an intrinsic dignity that is distinct from anything else about us. The supreme value of the image of God far outweighs any other consideration in determining our worth. If you're here this morning, you are wor- there's, there's worth, there is value to who you are, more, more importantly than anything else, because you are made in God's image. And we know. That in different ways because of the fall. We remember the storyline of scripture, creation and fall and redemption. The, the image of God has been marred and distorted uh, in some important ways. And yet it remains here. We are still in the image of God. Every human being bears God's image. And since that's true, every human being is to be treated with dignity and worth. That means the disabled, the elderly, the poor, the terminally ill. They've all been made in, in, in the image of God. And should be considered, their life should be considered valuable and not discarded. Sometimes we're able to look at people, maybe convicts or somebody, uh, somebody who's addicted to drugs, and we're sort of able to demean them and think low, lowly of them. And maybe they haven't made the best choices in life. But listen, we can never get to the point where we devalue any human life because they are made in the image of God. Now, This principle that is true, that we're made in the image of God, and that means that every human being has value and worth, that has something to say about the way that we think about the poor and the issue of poverty. It influences it. It should shape that. And there's that that idea where we're taking this principle, we're taking this truth of Scripture, and now let's put it into practice in, in a particular concrete kind of way. 
There's an issue that we deal with. There's, there's poverty all around us. There's po- poverty all throughout the world. How should we think about that? Well, there, there may be many different ways that we think about it, but a fundamental way that we think about it is that these people are made in God's image. And they deserve worth. They deserve value. We ought to care for them because of that. So listen to Proverbs 14.31. I think here we're seeing this idea of their intrinsic worth being made in the image of God played out with the issue of poverty. So Proverbs 14.31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So when you insult or you degrade or, 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 or whatever, uh, when it comes to someone who's in poverty, uh, you are insulting God himself because this person is made in the image of God. And on the flip side, when you're generous to the needy, it's as if you're being generous to God. You're, you're honoring God. Or how about Proverbs 19, 17? Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Again, in Job 34, verse 19, God shows no partiality to princes nor regards the rich more than the poor for they are all the work of his hands. So here's this idea of being in the image of God applied specifically to to those who are poor. This is why all throughout Scripture, God not only calls His people to care for the poor, but God Himself seems to show favor to the poor of the world. God has a special place in His heart for the poor and has chosen most often to work among the poor rather than the rich. This is why we see Jesus saying things like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or Jesus coming and quoting Isaiah, uh, Isaiah where, where Isaiah says that I've come to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the poor. Jesus Followers were so closely identified with with those who were the poor of this world that he can say that they are the ones who are blessed because they'll inherit the kingdom of God. Or James chapter 2, verse 5, James can say, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? In this, in this context, sometimes... Uh, commentators and Bible interpreters will will kind of spiritualize the fact that poor means that we're poor in spirit, uh, that we're broken before God, that we recognize that we are in need of help before God. And certainly that is true, especially in, in, in certain passages. But the passage here in James is so clearly talking about those who are literally poor. And James is saying, listen, God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. God has chosen the weak and the poor of this world. And that, that probably should, should inform some things about the way that we think about poverty, the way that we even think about missions. Who, who should we be trying to reach out to? Who, who should we be trying to take the gospel to? Well, we're to take the gospel to all people, but, but the Bible tells us here that God has specifically chosen to save the poor and the weak and the small of this world. You know, one of the great acts of wickedness all throughout the Bible, and especially over and over again in the Old Testament, is the oppression and the neglect of the poor. You read through the Old Testament and you find uh, there are various sins that God repeatedly brings up with His people, Israel. 
One of them is idolatry, right? They're continually going after the other gods. And so God had said, look, I am the only God. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God that delivered you, that saved you. So worship me alone. There's no room for any other gods. Don't commit idolatry. God also would, would talk very often about sexual immorality and different various forms of immorality. And, and, and the, part of that was wrapped up in the worship of these pagan gods. But, but God would talk about that throughout the prophets. Uh, but one of the things that you find, maybe surprisingly so for, for many of us, is that one of the indictments that he brings against his people Israel over and over again is the fact that they are both neglecting and oppressing the poor. And, and I say both of those, neglecting and oppressing, because sometimes we think, well, I'm not oppressing the poor, but we can neglect just as, as well. And God condemns both. And God brings judgment on his people in the Old Testament for both neglect and for oppression. So listen to just a, a sample of passages from the Old Testament. One is in Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58 verse 5. Is such the fast that I choose? Is this what I want of you? This is what God is asking in Isaiah 58. Is this what I want from you? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? It's a, it's a, a question that he's, he's answering. No, that's, that's not really what I want so much. And then he explains what he does want. Is not this the fast that I choose? Rather than going about acting sad and putting sackcloth and ashes, this is what I really want you to do. Loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Isaiah is saying, isn't this what God really wants? You all are, are acting so piously. You're going to church. You're going to the temple. You're going to the synagogue and you're putting sackcloth and ashes on your head. And you're bowing your head down like a reed. You're looking all pitiful before God. You're acting all pious and religion, religious. But, but isn't this what God really wants you to do to break the bonds of the oppressed? When you see the homeless and the poor and the needy, God wants you to go to them and, and bring them in. God wants you to care for them. That's what God really wants. How about it? How about Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 27? Like a cage full of bird, birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. They do not defend the rights of the needy. He goes on to say, shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? We could see again, let me read one more example from the book of Amos, and this is repeated. This is not one random passage. This is indictment after indictment, probably second only to the issue of idolatry in the Old Testament is the indictment against God's people for not caring for the poor. So Amos chapter 5 Verse 11, therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted 
pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many of your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. And then skipping down to verse 21, he says this, I hate, I despise your feast. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps. I will not listen. He's saying there's a problem. There's something here, Israel, that's hindering your worship. There's a problem. You're offering these sacrifices, which is what I've told you to do. You're coming into the temple and singing praises to the Lord, which ordinarily would be a good thing. But I don't want to hear your songs. I don't want to see your sacrifices. Instead, this is what I want. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. You see, they were trampling on the poor. And he says, look, let, instead of all offering these sacrifices and singing, and going to church, why don't you take care of the poor? Why don't you let justice flow down like waters? Over and over again, God indicts his people for not caring for the poor. We see in, throughout the Old Testament as well that the Lord promises to bless those who help the poor and He promises to curse those who do not help the poor. So in Psalm 41, verse 1, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the tr- day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Proverbs 12, or 21, 13, Whoever closes his ear to the, cry, to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. If you do not hear for the, the, the cries of the poor, if you do not care for the poor, God is saying here, He will not hear your cries. He will not answer you. Proverbs 28, 27, Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. We can do that. I think we do that. We live in our insulated little communities, our, our upper middle class communities, and, and we keep the poor out there at a distance and we hide our eyes from the poverty that is in this country and the poverty that is globally around the world. We hide our eyes. And what he's saying here, if you do that, you will get a curse. Or Proverbs 22, 9, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. You know, it's not enough. It is not enough. And the Bible makes this clear to simply give lip service to the idea of caring for the poor. We are called to actively put this into practice. And that's the verse that I read earlier in Proverbs 31 9. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. We are called as God's people to take active steps. It's not enough to say, well, I, I, yeah, I care about the poor. I, compare, I care about their plight and their situation. And and, uh, and these things, we are called as God's people to take active, definitive steps toward caring for the needy and the poor. In the Old Testament, uh, God, in, in His law, He gave specific laws that were meant to sort of institutionalize the care of the poor in the sense of th- this was all across the board. Uh, so there were laws like, you know, when you're, when you're reaping your harvest, don't reap all of it. Uh, And we remember from the story of Ruth and and Naomi that they go out, right, and they glean the edges of the field. That was because that was part of God's law. He says, don't don't reap every last bit of it. Instead, leave part of your harvest to be reaped 
by others, by the poor and the needy, so that they'll have food to eat as well. That's in Leviticus 19, verse verse 9. What that law teaches us, I think, is this idea and this mentality that so many of us have that what's mine is mine, what I work for is mine, and, and nobody else deserves it. What God is showing us in laws like that is that that's not exactly true. What's yours is God's. And He's given it to you and He expects you to have an open hand and to share it with others who are in need. So this, this strict sense of, of fairness and this idea that no, this is mine and it shouldn't be given to anyone else, that is against Scripture, against the law of God. We see this as well in Deuteronomy 15. I won't read this, but Deuteronomy 15, 7-11. Another law, God specifically commands His people to care for, for, for their brothers, for, for other Israelites, those who were in need, to have an open hand and to, to lend and to give generously to those who are in need. In the passage that Jared read in Psalm 82, we see that God holds the rulers accountable for caring for the poor. And he says that they were going to die because they failed to care for the poor and to maintain the cause of the afflicted and the destitute. You know, as we kind of bring this down, now, I think we're seeing over and over again in Scripture, it's, it's clear. God cares about the poor. God wants us to care about the poor. But I think there are some impediments uh, to us caring for the poor. I think there are a couple of lies that we often believe uh, especially here in America. One is the, the lie of the American dream that seems to ever be increasing. You see, there's a, a, certain, a certain level of living that we, are, we expect. Uh, you know, I, I'm mad right now because my wife won't let me get Sunday ticket. Uh, my, my expectation for comfortable living might be a little too high, right? We, we all buy nicer and nicer cars. It, the American dream is no longer just that you have have a home to live in and food for your family to eat. Now the American dream is that you have a home like you see on TLC. And if your home's not good enough, you need to completely renovate everything and have everything new and fresh and looking great. And you've got that, that TV that you have isn't good enough. You need a bigger TV. And the car that you have isn't quite nice enough. You need a newer car. And on and on and on. And we've bought into this. And it just grows and it grows and it grows. And this is the lie of, of, of riches that it tells you that Eventually, you'll get to the point where you're comfortable and where you're happy. Eventually, you'll have enough. Eventually, you'll, you'll have everything new. But it, it never happens. It just Your appetite grows and grows and grows. And you're never satisfied. And then we look around and say, well, I really don't have enough money to give to the poor. I really don't have enough to help those who, who are in need. I can do a little bit, but, but not much. But what you see the problem, right? We bought into this lie that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and it's never satisfied. And it hinders us from helping those who are in need, from giving generously. There's a second lie I think we believe, and, and that is this, that, that the poor could simply help themselves a little bit more. We believe that the poor, especially here in America, are simply those who are too lazy to work. And if they would just go and get a job, and anybody can get a job, right? And they can go and get a job and work. I work hard. Why don't they work hard? And if they would work hard, then they could provide for themselves and care for themselves. And there, there is an ounce of truth to that. There, there is some truth to, to the fact that some poor are, are simply lazy and they're reaping the benefits of, of their laziness. It's, it's God's judgment on, on their sin. And yet the, the causes of poverty 
cannot be just related down to boiled down to that one cause. There are a whole host of issues that play in and that factor in to the cause of poverty. There are psychological, mental, physical, and cultural reasons for poverty. And I won't go into all those, but there are various issues that lead people into poverty. And we need to recognize that. And by the way, God never tells us in all of the commands to care for the poor and to care for the needy, God never says, and make sure that they're not taking advantage of you. Make sure that you, you check them out and make sure that they're, that, they could, that they're really not able to work and so on. He simply says, care for the poor. He never conditions it in Scripture. Our, our generosity is never conditioned to the poor on our ability to determine their worthiness of such help. We're simply called to give. God, they will give an account to God as far as their actions. But to say that it's simply an issue of laziness or perhaps we think about other countries and we think about, well, their governments are corrupt and if their governments were corrupt, then their people would be fed and taken care of. But, but look, the, the issues are more complex than that. And God calls us to care for the poor no matter the situation. After all, I, I think... My eyes were open to this a little bit more. I think when we lived in Louisville, and uh, we lived in sort of a, a low-income part of the community in, in Louisville, you couldn't get to Kroger, into Kroger without somebody stopping you and asking you uh, for money. And uh, one of the things that I recognized after talking to different people, uh, with it, there really were other issues. There, there were mental and psychological and sometimes physical issues that were keeping these people in poverty. And that God called me to care for them no matter the situation. And, and 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 really came to hit home with me. There, Paul is really talking about other issues, but he lays out this question. I think it's something that we should all ask ourselves as we, as we kind of come up with reasons why we shouldn't help the poor or how they could help themselves a little bit better. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4 7 says this, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Many of us have been born into situations culturally. It's the fact that we're born in America, the fact that we're born in middle class homes, the, the fact that we've been uh, given the ability to work, the fact that we live even in the community that we live in with, with the jobs that we have. It's very easy for us who have been given so much, that have been really handed so much, to say, well, we've really worked hard. Well, yes, you have worked hard. And yes, there, there is something to just, just putting on your work boots and going to work and trying to earn, earn a living. But there are other issues out there. And sometimes I think we fail to see how much we have been blessed in this process and how much other people, just by virtue of where they're born, the culture they're born in, the education level of the family that they're born into, and so on, that, that hinders them from being able to do what we think they ought to do. There are other issues. God calls us to be generous. They are made in the image of God. There is infinite value and worth in these people. So let's not just, let's not just relegate them to, to people who ought to be able to work harder. They deserve our care and our love as those who are made in the image of God. I think sometimes Jared mentioned the Good Samaritan and I think sometimes with our excuses, we're like, we're like the rich man that, that came to Jesus. And, and uh, he, Jesus had said, uh, the, the commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and he was looking for 
an escape valve. He was looking for a way out of that command. And he says, and, and who is my neighbor? Who is it that I'm supposed to love? And it's in that context that Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan and how this man helps the one who's laying on the side of the road. And Jesus asked him at the end of that, who do you think was a neighbor to that man? You see, that's what we're called to do. We're called to, let's put away all of our excuses, all of our reasons why we don't help, all of the things, and let's just be a neighbor. Let's love as we love ourselves and help those who are in need. Now, I think we need to be wise about the way that we give. I don't think we need to just simply throw our money away. Uh, I, I think we do need to be careful. There are some people who do take advantage. But, but what I see so often is people using that as an excuse why they don't give at all, why they don't help at all. You see, here's our responsibility, okay? Our responsibility is if you think this person or this person isn't worthy of help, then find someone who is because there are poor people. There are needy. God, God says that. Christ Himself says, the poor you will always have with you. There are poor in every society and we need to find whoever it is that we would deem as in need and we need to help them. That's your responsibility. That's my responsibility. It's our responsibility as a church. As we conclude this morning, let me just give you three tangible ways that maybe we as a church or individually that we can can help with this. One, let me just commend to you foster care and adoption. Uh, These children who are in the foster care system who need to be adopted are those who truly are there at no fault of their own. They are those, James says, that that true religion is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows. There, There is a great need. We've been involved in foster care for a long time. There is a great need for foster parents and for good foster parents. There are a lot of foster parents, a lot of adoptive parents that that aren't good. There is a great need for good foster parent and, and adoptive parents. Consider that. Why is it that you would be exempt from that? That is a, a, for, a need out in the forefront in, in our own uh, community. Consider that. Consider also on October 9th. Uh, is, is Global Hunger Sunday. I don't put it up here, but you have an insert in your bulletin. And what we're going to do Wednesday night, we're going to vote in our business meeting to, to take that offering on October 9th and give it to, uh, to Global Hunger Relief, which is an initiative uh, that is going through the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, they're using their missionaries and sort of their support system that's all in place already so that 100% of our donations will go directly to help feed those who are in need. And you can find that uh, if you'll just Google Global Hunger Relief. uh, That'll come up and you can find out more or get an insert in the bulletin. But that's another tangible step that that we can take. And, And a third thing, I just want us as a church, one thing I've been trying to work out, we've done some mission trips. I want us to to find somebody, to find a community, to find a group who are in need to adopt them and seek to help them and seek to care for them. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for various ways. I'm open to suggestions. Uh, I've thought about Louisville, and, and I don't want to get too far off into this. There, there are a lot of people that move into Louisville from all over the world who are poor, who are in need of help, and I think that might be, uh, there are a couple organizations that we might partner with through them. Uh, but be open to that. Have your eyes open. The responsibility of you is not to, not to solve the problem of world hunger and not to alleviate all poverty, but to seek out and find those who are in need. And I think that's what we're called to this morning. I think that's how we take biblical truth and we apply it to any number of given issues.
Will you pray with me this morning? Our Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning, and it is our prayer that you would make us more receptive, more open.